KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. A Temple history professor has written a very interesting article for the Journal of the American Revolution, which looks at the result of the Battle of Yorktown. The win for the Continental Army effectively ended the Revolutionary War, paving the way for United States independence. The victory celebrated in American history, but what's not talked about is how its aftermath helped perpetuate slavery for decades. Let's take a look at that history now with that professor, Dr. Gregory Irwin. So let's talk a little bit about the article you've written, Yorktown. I was fascinated by it. First of all, Yorktown represents the end of the American Revolution, but your research, your article kind of shows it's not the overall positive thing that we've kind of been taught in history class over the years. Kind of, first of all, talk about Yorktown and what it represents. Growing up in the 1960s, I was taught in school that that Yorktown was the decisive victory that guaranteed American independence in the Revolutionary War. It's, it's the battle or the siege uh, that made America free. So it was something uh, uh, worth celebrating. And, and uh, the fact that we live in the United States, uh, which Yorktown made possible, uh, there's a good case to be made for that. But like any event in history, it depends on whose perspective is involved. Uh, to those white Americans uh, who supported uh, the rebel cause or, or the continental cause, uh, the patriot cause, who, who wanted independence from Great Britain, certainly Yorktown turned out to be a triumph, the battle that broke Britain's will to continue the war. But if you were African-American and most um, were slaves, uh, it was a, a victory that also perpetuated uh, the existence of slavery for another eight decades. African-Americans, at least a large number of them, saw the British cause as the one that offered them the greatest opportunity for, for liberty, for freedom. Blacks uh, had been fleeing to the British uh, ever since the Redcoats arrived in strength in uh, those uh, United States that had the largest uh, slave populations, the southern states, Georgia, South Carolina, uh, and then uh, beginning in 1781, Virginia. When, when given a, a, a choice, uh, Blacks uh, tended to uh, link their fortunes uh, with the King's troops. And uh, so you have a large number of African-Americans that are following Lord Cornwallis around Virginia that follow him to Yorktown. Cornwallis uh, is happy to uh, provide uh, a freedom, especially to those Blacks who belonged uh, to the enemies of the king, although he doesn't really differentiate between uh, slaves uh, uh, claimed by either loyalist or patriot enslavers. Uh, but when Cornwallis is forced to surrender, uh, that gambit comes to nothing. George Washington, uh, a few days after the surrender, he will convert his army into an army of slave catchers to round them up, place them in uh, a couple of detention centers so they can uh, be reclaimed uh, by the people who considered themselves uh, the slaves' owners. 
Um, so it's uh, there's a window of light. There's a window of opportunity for these people. Uh, it's open for a matter of months, and then it's shut tight. And it'll take another war, an even bloodier war, uh, like the Revolution, a war that, that, that pitted American against American. The death toll will be even greater before uh, slavery is, is destroyed in 1865. It really is amazing to me as someone who would consider himself an amateur historian. I enjoy reading about it, watching documentaries, but it is really amazing to me, kind of the, the cognitive dissidence for a lot of the Washington Jefferson who, you know, shrieked for freedom, but had no problems enslaving people. And you, you know, I, I remember reading some stuff about Washington where he didn't even see really anything wrong with it like i it's just fascinating to me how you can kind of um and i guess it it happens all the time but just on this stage that you kind of operate in two different hemispheres when it comes to freedom well we 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 all um americans today and americans of the past we have a way uh, of rationalizing of ignoring um inconvenient truths for instance uh, we know that uh, some of the things we're doing to the environment <laughs> are going to, uh, well, I shouldn't even say are going to, are, are complicating our lives today. And yet we find all kinds of excuses to not make uh, radical changes. Well, we don't want to damage the economy. We, we don't want to deny people jobs, things like that. And uh, slavery and some of the other uh, practices on which we look down today, uh, the people who, who kept those practices going had what they thought were perfectly uh, valid reasons for doing so. Uh, that's one reason why uh, it's important to uh, to study history and and to look at the inconvenient truths to get get by the uh, triumphalist uh, approach uh, that that so many Americans hold dear. The revolution it's our founding myth. We have this need to believe that the people who founded this country were perfect. You know, in, in a way we we we. Uh, give the founders the benefit of the doubt more than any other generation of politician that followed them. You know, we put them on pedestals. And, you know, these were men who who achieved something remarkable and who espoused principles that have led Americans to, in in effect, improve on what they left us, uh, to push for even uh, broader freedoms, than, than what most Americans enjoyed in, in 1776 or 1781, but they weren't perfect. Uh, they left a lot of, uh, say, uh, work undone. And um, recognizing that, I think, makes it easier to uh, realize that we still have improvements to make on what we have inherited. So I'm, I'm not... Uh, I don't think of myself as an iconoclast, but at the same time, yeah, there's a contradiction there. You can't say all men are created equal and, and then say, well, that only re- really appeals, or I'm sorry, that only really applies to white men who have a certain amount of land, you know, a certain amount of wealth, uh, doesn't apply to women, doesn't apply to people of color, doesn't apply to uh, Native Americans, etc. cetera. But uh, the fact that they said things like that in order to, to rally mass support, the mass support they needed to challenge the British Empire, a lot of Americans took it literally. 
And uh, as time went by, they'd say, well, you know, we're not living up to these principles. We've got to make certain changes. Uh, we've got to add amendments to the Constitution, etc. And uh, so, in effect, uh, the people who, who founded this country put us on a trajectory, I feel, to making things better. Doesn't, that doesn't mean that improvement was guaranteed. It's involved a lot of struggle. Uh, but still, uh, the United States, I think, has ended up becoming something, at least up to this point in time, greater and freer than the people who founded it could have imagined. Have you ever come across in your research, reading papers of the time and letters and such, that there was ever an acknowledgement for a Washington or a Jefferson of that they were espousing one thing and practicing another? Well, sometimes obliquely. Washington, before the revolution, after splitting up a family at a slave auction, swore he would never do that again. So while he clung to slavery, at the same time, he was trying to mitigate it. You know, I'm not going to sell children away from their parents. Jefferson wrestled with, with the question more, more overtly. Um, certain things he said in, in, well, in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, certain remarks he uttered at the Second Continental Congress, uh, a book that he, he published uh, right after the revolution called Notes on the State of Virginia, where he expresses an uneasiness with slavery, but he says, well, we, we, it's not practical to give it up. Uh, he talks about uh, fear of revenge, uh, which in my reading means if, if, I do, if somebody had done this to me, I'd want revenge against him. So, you know, we, the only way we can keep black people in our midst if we keep them under control. And, and he'll end up uh, in the 1820s more or less saying that openly. He'll, he'll, in two letters, he'll talk about his efforts to try to find a way to get away from slavery. But he ends up concluding that we have the wolf by the ears. We have the wolf, but now visualize that. If you pick up a wolf by the ears, you cannot let go because Wolfie will tear your throat out. And in effect, because we've kept these people in bondage, if we free them, uh, they're going to turn on us. And that was, that, would, that was a general belief throughout the South. I mean, one reason why uh, whites who did not own slaves would support and defend and die in record numbers on behalf of a country dedicated to the uh, preservation of slavery, the Confederate States of America, was that they believed if you freed slaves, that would mean race war. And either the white race or the black race would be exterminated. Um, so you know, that fear helped to drive um, white Southerners out of the Union and, and caused them to uh, suffer a higher number of military casualties uh, proportionally, at least, than any other American army in history. To the point after Yorktown, to get back to the premise of your article, could you have seen a scenario where Washington just didn't issue that order and just didn't address it at all? Even if you're not pro saying everyone is yeah. free, just kind of leaving the field and letting it settle itself. Would you think that was a possibility? Not unless he was willing to go on unemployment and go into exile because the Virginia planters who had lost their slaves, they were pressuring state authorities and continental authorities to get their 
people back as they would have seen it to get their to get their enslaved uh, people back. Uh, a Virginia official hit Washington with a letter right after Yorktown, and that's what prompted the order. Uh, but you know, Washington himself was a slaveholder and a Virginian. Uh, he had lost slaves to the British, and he was not happy about that. So he would have had to have undergone some sort of radical reformation to say, no, we're not going to not worry about, about these people. Uh, but he, you know, he'll be uh, determined down to the end of the war, uh, part of the uh, Treaty of Paris uh, that uh, ended the revolution. Uh, there was a clause there put in by American insistence that the British return all the slaves. Uh, that had fled to them for refuge. There were a lot that were uh, in New York City, which was the last main British base uh, in the United States. And, and Washington kept pressuring the last British commander-in-chief, Sir Guy Carleton. Uh, you know, uh, there should be a record who these people are, who their owners were, uh, so that you can turn them over to us and, and we can then return them uh, to their enslavers. And Carleton put together that record. It's, it's known today as the Book of Negroes, but at the last moment, Carleton defied his own government and defied Washington and said, no, I can't, I can't turn these people over. And they were shipped to Nova Scotia. Uh, but Washington, you know, unless, as I say, he was just willing to, to give up everything and face censure uh, uh, from the Continental Congress, which was under pressure from the southern states to recover slaves. I can't see him doing anything else. But the fact that he did, it shouldn't be ignored either. It does say something, whether, you know, even if you're not trying to make a bad guy out of Washington, you're saying, okay, we understand. Uh, how else could he have acted? This reflects the values of the United States at that point in history and helps us to better understand how this country nearly destroyed itself 80 years later over this unresolved issue. You think of early American history and kind of the icons that emerge it is a series of Virginia planters. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Alexander Hamilton and John Adams from mm -hmm. the, the, the upper Northeast. How did they vibe as far as the idea that these Virginia slave owners are fighting for freedom, but they own slaves? Like, is there any record kind of the, of them recognizing the, the situation? Well, yeah, people, people, you know, again, saw these inconsistencies, even among slaveholders, they saw these inconsistencies. Some people just were able to live with it or just, you know, as I say, rationalized it. Others uh, not as easily. Uh, but, you know, as you say, think of early American history. First thing you should think of at, you know, at the time of the revolution, one out of every five Americans is black. One out of every five. And that really doesn't come through. In the, in the books, because again, there's this inordinate focus on white people because we view them as the movers and the shakers. They had the money, they had the power, they had the influence. Uh, they, they wrote the history, they wrote the letters, they wrote the diaries, they wrote the newspaper tracts. But, you know, these people that founded this country, you know, their, their primary loyalty uh, initially was to their native colonies or states. So everybody from other places are strange. They just don't do things as well as we do. Their women don't look as good as our women do, that kind of thing. And then, okay, you know, there's slavery everywhere, but there are certain places where there are a lot of slaves. But when you came down to it, um, we need 
the South. We need the planters. Uh, they have a lot of wealth, which is essential to finance our revolution. But we, we know we need their 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 numbers. We need their their support. We need their troops on the battlefield. So okay, you know, yeah, there are certain problems. Hopefully, we can deal with them later. But for the present, these are our priorities. So you know, slavery, protecting slavery, is an interest of the United States because it's essential to. Uh, keeping about uh, half of the 13 states, uh, and I'm talking about states that were, where slavery was really a strong interest, keeping them as part of the union. I think it is one thing if this t- if this history isn't taught in high school history. But like I said, I'm someone who kind of searches out, you know, American history, and I had not heard of this until your article came forth it really does and i think you said off the top that you know we kind of see history through the eyes and i'm paraphrasing but who writes it who wants it we really see a lot of this early american history through white eyes and through really upper middle class white eyes and it really does doctor the story or the angle and what's told maybe not even in what's told but more importantly what's not told that, that's true. I mean, uh, you're influenced by the perspective of the people who write the sources you use. Uh, I can't go back and interview George Washington or any, even more fascinatingly, interview all those slaves and get their personal stories. They're, they exist in fragments uh, in, in uh, affidavits filed by their, by their uh, masters trying to recover them or uh, the, the advertisements that were put in uh, uh, the Virginia Gazette and other newspapers, uh, you know, they would describe the people who run away, what they were wearing, what their age was, what trade they had, if any, uh, any distinguishing marks in an effort to recover what, what they considered their property. Uh, but yeah, so, so you're limited by the sources. But at the same time, we limit ourselves by sometimes deciding ahead of time what we're looking for. Instead of saying, okay, I read the source of hook. This is something I didn't know. Well, no, I'm going to, I want to write a book about Yorktown and I want to tell the story of what a brilliant general George Washington was and what a great victory this was. And um, it's just like, well, this isn't part of that narrative I had in mind. So uh, I'm not going to incorporate it into my, into my own story. And, And that's, that's a pitfall. We have to be open to what the sources tell us uh, because there, there are a lot of surprises out there if we go about this work without blinders on. Yeah, and I think I saw somewhere, I believe in your article or maybe an article about your article, that this information wasn't, it's, yes. it's there. It's not, this is not, you know, some, some quest where you had to put pieces together and it's right there in the papers. It's just whether it's chosen to be amplified. No, it's, I mean, these orders that Washington put out they're part of his papers at the Library of Congress. And, and back uh, in those days when, when uh, headquarters issued orders, every subordinate command copied them into what were known as orderly books. So the, the, these directives, uh, there are all kinds of copies. The Historical Society of Pennsylvania, the John D. Rockefeller Research Center, and Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. It's not like, as I say, they were just buried or you know, we found this in an attic. You know, and no one had opened this trunk for 200 years. Uh, it's just we we went about the work with closed minds. Are we getting better at telling the whole story? I feel like 
progress is being made to look at things in a, a more holistic, looking at how they affected not just the white people. It's slow progress, but do you feel like we're getting better at telling the whole story? It's inevitable as the demography of the historical profession changes. Uh, more than 100 years ago, it was a largely patrician profession, you know, affluent white males. And then um, with World War II and the GI Bill, a lot of guys whose parents may have been coal miners or, uh, you know, welders or, or, or people who worked uh, pipe fitters, et cetera, they become historians and they say, well, all this stuff about uh, uh, affluent white people and presidents, that's interesting. But what about the labor movement? And then women come in. And, of course, they're looking. I mean, not all women historians do women's history, but more women's history is being done because there are more women doing history. And, and people of other backgrounds, African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera. Uh, all of us, uh, in one way, shape, or form, are looking, uh, and look, are looking for ourselves. Whether that's unbiased or not, it's a different slant. And so different things get highlighted. And, and as a result of that, I'm hoping we can come up with a new synthesis that'll be more inclusive. Uh, the only thing that worries me, though, is that there, there's this pushback. Uh, and there's a fear that, that talking about certain things and certain groups of people might become illegal in American classrooms, uh, not just in, in high schools or lower, but even, even in colleges and universities. This uh, critical race theory uh, label, uh, I, I fear it could be used just to, to sanitize history uh, and try and take us back to where we were. But the lid's off. We're never going to go back. We're never going to go back. Uh, whether Americans find out certain things in school or later when they're reading on their own, uh, I think that uh, a fuller story is being created, and I hope we can find a way to just kind of re re reorganize our thoughts and come to view America in a different way, one that recognizes that, that all Americans <laughs> are, part, are, are part of who we are. We shouldn't try and segregate our history. We just try and open it up and say, okay, great. Uh, this is something that we have to deal with. Uh, and let's get, let's get to it. Let's debate it. Let's talk it back and forth. And let's see how we sort it out uh, in the years to come. Because we're constantly going to be doing that. We're constantly going to be doing that. Because history is not a record of everything that happened. It's, it's those elements from the past that mean something to us. Uh, and so at different points in our history, Certain episodes, certain aspects of the past are going to mean more than, than they did before or they will in the future. And uh, that's, that's only natural, I think. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.